jurisdiction is it anyway? Welcome to the show where the province won't fund housing and the surplus doesn't matter. Plus, we'll update you on regional transit, single-use plastics, and building community parks. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 190. That's two queens minus two. Mac, how will you be spending your federally mandated but provincially prohibited holiday on Monday? <laughs> well, I'll probably be up in the middle of the night, so maybe I'll turn on the TV to see the uh, the funeral, but otherwise I'll be working just like a normal day. And this is just a normal episode of the podcast, which means rapid fire segment. In a provincial government all about cutting red tape and efficiency, rather than giving a day off, the UCP is recommending that workers who feel extremely emotional about the Queen's funeral on Monday simply sob at their desk at work. Said Premier Jason Kenney, quote, It's all about efficiency of vertical integration. Albertans regularly sob at their work desk over housing unaffordability, the opioid crisis, the 40-some people dying every week due to COVID-19, and now the Queen. Plus, our government has made sobbing at your desk more accessible than ever. Even if you're actively sick with symptoms of COVID, the UCP has confirmed that at work, without a mask, sobbing is exactly where you should be. The TTC in Toronto, that's their public transit service, has announced that all buses and trains will cease service for 96 seconds at 1pm on Monday in honour of Queen Elizabeth II. Not to be one-upped by Toronto, Edmonton has announced that the Valley Line Southeast will delay its opening by 96 months. Did you see that I stole that joke from Dave? (laughs) Yes, I did. That's good. (laughs) It's too good. It's too good. Had to do it. You can credit him if you want. Nope. The federal building in Edmonton will soon be named the Queen Elizabeth II building after the highway which links the two major cities in the province. Said Transportation Minister Prasad Panda, quote, The QE2 is the epicenter of Albertan culture. It has the highest concentration of trucks driving 140 kilometers an hour with photo radar license plate covers in the entire province. It seems only fitting that this building would be named after such an influential and important piece of infrastructure. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Alberta Blue Cross understands that running a small business is tough, and they understand that business owners in Alberta are busy. Let Alberta Blue Cross give you peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Alberta Blue Cross group benefit plans are easy to manage anywhere, anytime, and on any device, making it easy for you and your employees to access. To learn more and to explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Well, Mac, we were careful last week not to provide guesses and predictions as solidly as we had in the past because we have been wrong in the past. But regional transit did take a step forward last week. Yeah, this was at City Council and they ultimately voted to support the plan 10 to 3. So they endorsed the phase one service plan for the EMTSC, the Metropolitan Transit Service Commission. This plan is now expected to come you know, into reality sometime next year, maybe as soon as April 2023. And the phase one part includes 11 routes across the region. What council didn't do this week was allocate any funding. And we think that it's going to cost at least $7 million from the city of Edmonton to fund their portion of this phase one plan. But at least they didn't you know, say, oh, we're no longer in this, 
the regional transit dream is dead. Council did endorse the plan and said, we want to keep moving forward. They're expecting to get more information about the budget later this fall, which they'll, you know, of course, debate in conjunction with all the other budget debates that are going to go on this fall. And I think council went through great pains at the meeting and afterwards to make it very clear that while it's not funded at this point in time, they were very supportive of the plan. And they made a motion to have the mayor on behalf of council write a letter to regional members saying, no, 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 we're 100% on board. Don't don't get nervous. We're on board. Get on board too. Yeah, that was a notice of motion that uh, Councillor Knack brought forward. So one of the main pieces of opposition we heard from council to this plan is that it's maybe difficult for them to justify bringing regional routes to the table and improving regional service when they're hearing from constituents that local service needs to be improved. And Councillor Knack was one of the people who at the meeting said, well, hang on a minute. These are new routes. This is improving local service as well as achieving some of the goals we have regionally. So he was sort of, you know, taking the opposite approach and defending it. And he gave notice of motion that, you know, he would ask for, you know, as you say, the mayor to write that letter saying we're still in this and, and also to draft a mandate letter for phase two and to try and get some expectations set up more clearly in advance uh, of phase two so that we can avoid this will they won't they a little bit more next time. And I did hear during the discussions, uh, Mayor Sohi made very explicit that, you know, taking this EMTSC approach, having this separate organization manage these routes will be a more expensive way of doing this versus, you know, ETS just running the routes themselves. But I don't think he was saying that as a downside, because I think what we're hearing from council here is that they're very committed to the idea of the Regional Transit Commission. And the hope would be that, you know, Sherwood Park gets on board in the future. If they were to kibosh the organization in order to save a little bit of money up front, that might quash the hopes of ever getting those larger regional municipalities on board, which, of course, is the end goal here. Yeah, that's right. There's seven other members currently. They're all expected to transfer their local transit operations to this commission. Edmonton will be the only one that doesn't, of course. And as you and I talked about before, what's the end game here? Probably that ETS and this regional transit commission are one in the same, right? And that Edmonton runs the show. And uh, Edmonton needed to take a step forward this week in order to continue on that trajectory for that to have any chance of happening, as you say. And so that's what they did. And St. Albert's Mayor Kathy Heron, she said that this was a positive thing. Right. And she sort of acknowledged what the mayor did, which is that, yeah, it might be a little bit more painful for Edmonton initially. But eventually, when we get to this full build out, we have one system. That's when the efficiencies come into play. And if I'm being honest, I think the biggest winner of this entire regional transit discussion is St. Albert. They've got a population that doesn't have jobs anywhere other than Edmonton. Every single resident of St. Albert commutes into Edmonton for work. That's a fact, right? It's a, it's a fact. Look it up. Uh, it's just science. Many, many of them to the city of Edmonton or Edmonton Tower. St. Albert has just installed this new transit facility over on, for the life of me, I can't remember the road that sort of like loops around to the east. Do you know your St. Albert roads, Mac? <laughs> uh, no. Maps.google.com. Ah, Campbell Road. Yeah, they just installed their new transit facility on Campbell Road, which will provide a lot of park and ride for St. Albert residents. So getting this regional connection where it has a tight integration with the city, that's a big win for St. Albert, who, of course, long-term wants LRT. That would be the best yeah. case scenario for St. Albert residents. People live and work in, in all different parts of the region, and they should be able to get around without having to use a car. 
that's not going to happen with phase one, but it's a starting point, right, to get us there. Public transit, of course, is very important. Also important for people in society is housing. Uh, living in places is generally confirmed to be good for people, which is why it's so frustrating. And we've expressed our frustration on this podcast before that we just don't seem to be able to get previously supportive housing built. But now we seem to be able to get some of supportive housing built, but not actually people inside receiving the supports. Yeah, the city's done well, I think, uh, to build affordable housing. We talked about that previously. They surpassed their own targets. They've been able to take you know, the money that they've put in and multiply that by accessing federal funding. For example, this summer they finished building a supportive housing complex in King Edward Park and another in Inglewood. The two buildings are supportive housing buildings, so they're meant to house people who have chronic mental health or addictions issues, and they're meant to have 24-7 staff support. That's the supportive housing part of it. There's about 60 available units in those two buildings, and Homer Trust and the city confirmed to CBC this week that nobody has moved in to those units. And the reason they cited that nobody has moved in is that they don't have funding from the provincial government to operate those facilities. And this is something that council and the mayor have been pretty consistent in asking for throughout this whole last four years of building affordable and supportive housing and setting these targets. They've continually talked about the need for the province to come to the table to support. The feds have you know, done their part to contribute to building this with the rapid housing initiative, but they continually are saying that we're not getting the support that we need from the province. And all of this happened this week, Troy. The story came out around the same time as we heard about the provincial surplus. Of course, having $13 billion makes it much, much more easy to fund these supportive housing initiatives. But Mac, you don't actually need $13 billion to fund it. Uh, you published a tweet this week that I think really put into context just how little money we're actually talking about here. Yes. Yeah, so in this article, uh, Community and Social Services Minister Jason Wan you know, basically said they fund Homeward Trust Edmonton to the tune of $29 million a year to operate more than 400 supportive housing units. Now, if you do the math on that, it means that you're around $72,000 per unit. So for these 60 units that are built and still empty, we're talking about $4.3 million or so to fund them. And it's actually probably less than that because Homeward Trust says, yeah, we get $29 million for those 400, but it's not just to operate those. those. That budget goes to a lot of other things, like they're stretched really thin. But even if we just believe the provincial number, $4.3 million is what we're talking about to operate those 60 units. And it just occurred to me that you know, we've just allocated way more money than that recently from the city of Edmonton over this summer into things that are about operations that potentially could have been used for this. And I'm thinking in particular about the $15.2 million over two years that council approved for the Healthy Streets Operations Center in Chinatown. And when they approved that, the mayor himself said, we know that the underlying causes around the safety and security issues in Chinatown and relate to mental health and addictions and you know, housing and homelessness, those things are provincial responsibilities, he said. And he said, quote, I'm under no illusion that we will be able to make our communities safer until we tackle these issues. So they funded the police with money that maybe could have gone to address some of those root issues. And the reason is it's not our jurisdiction. It's not that they just funded the police and they could have spent this money. It's that they set aside $11 million, so more than enough for a couple years of funding this, 
they set aside that $11 million away from the police budget, then gave it back to the police because we didn't have another use for that money at this point. I understand the jurisdictional argument. I understand this is the provincial responsibility. Personally, I'm past the point of caring. I get so bored hearing that refrain because it's almost tedious at this point. Yes, the province is abdicating the responsibility. Yes, we should drill this down. But yes, we should just do it because the UCP has given us no indication they ever plan to do this. And in fact, have given us every indication that there is no plan to commit this funding. Politically, let's stop holding out our hat, say, pretty please, Mr. Province, let's be kind to these people who need our support the most. Let's just fund it. We clearly have the money because we just fund a healthy streets operation center. And then send the province an invoice for abdication of responsibility. Like, it sounds like a joke, but if you're looking to do a political stunt, that, I think, is a very effective way to put pressure on the government. It's like, we paid for this. Here's the invoice. Tell your constituents when you're campaigning why you're making like an orphan well owner and throwing away your invoice. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think the previous council felt like they were putting pressure on the province by saying, well, you know what, we're going to get these things built. We have limited budget for capital construction, but we're going to put a good chunk of it toward affordable housing because it's so important. We're going to get them built. And if we do that, we'll get the province to the table to help us operate them. And as you say, there's never really been an indication that the province has any desire or interest to do that. So that sort of political pressure failed, evidently. In all of this, though, I just feel like we've lost sight of what the whole point is, which is to get people housed because we know that it works. There was research out of the University of Calgary just a couple of weeks ago about how effective it is to do the housing first approach. I don't understand why council is comfortable. It seems comfortable to just complain about the province not coming to the table rather than reminding ourselves that there are 60 units that people could be living in if we put the money toward that. And yes, you and I both think they have the money today to do that rather than funding crazy things like this Healthy Streets Operations Center. But even if we think about the savings in the future, this is addressing root causes, right? This is hopefully going to reduce the budget that we need to spend on other things in the future. That's the whole idea. So seems like a good investment to me to make. So look, we, we're both on the same page and we're both equally frustrated about this. But I think despite our best hopes, I don't know that city council listens to our podcast and takes it as gospel doctrine of what they must do at the next meeting. So I don't know that us saying this gets it passed at the next meeting. <laughs> What's actually going to happen? What are the next steps here? Well, Homer Trust did say that a few tenants could move in as early as maybe a week or two from now, but it'll be a staggered process. I guess they're going to try and move some money around to help pay for that, analyze some existing programs, see if they can do some creative accounting to make that happen. I suppose we could see something come up in the operating budget discussion that happens. We, of course, know that we're going to be having a conversation or council will be having a conversation about construction of new affordable and supportive housing units. It's obvious they're going to need to have a conversation about funding for operating those things. And I guess if I'm hopeful, Troy, looking a little bit further out, had council decided to fund even just the two years of this, that would get us to the next provincial election, right? Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that the city of Edmonton made this play. They said, well, if we fund affordable housing construction and get these capital costs covered, that will put pressure on the provincial government to act and fund this. And 
we were a bit dismissive of that earlier, and I don't think we should have been. I think it is a very good plan what the previous council put forward in order to put pressure. Mm. I think there is just a particular government in power right now that has no desire to appear as if they are being kind to either Edmonton or the most vulnerable or to people who need it. That's just not their modus operandi. And, you know, culturally in Edmonton, it was pretty hard to predict who would have such a vindictive government in power. Uh, and alas, here we are. But as you say, 2023, who knows what the future might hold. One thing I can tell you council should not do is continue to advocate for two things at the same time, right? They are continually putting pressure on the province to help pay for that healthy operations center. So they approved the money, but they actually want to get money from the province to cover that while also asking for funding for supportive housing. I think you got to pick one now. And it's clear that the one that we should be getting them to fund is supportive housing. Of course, council does focus on many things at one time, and one of the things that they had planned to focus on this week, but didn't, was a single-use plastics ban. Yeah, this bylaw had come before us previously. It was now ready for second and third reading. This was supposed to be a public hearing for people to have their say about the ban, which, if approved, this bylaw, it would ban single-use plastic bags. There would be fees now, 15 to 25 cents, for buying paper bags and reusable bags. There would uh, be a ban on single-use accessories. So if you order from Skip the Dishes or Uber Eats, they're not allowed to give you straws and utensils and condiments and stuff unless you specifically ask for it. Uh, styrofoam cups and containers would be banned. And uh, any restaurant that has service would be required to allow you to use uh, your own cups. And also, if you're going to stay in, you'd have to use reusable cups. So they couldn't serve you a coffee in a paper cup if you're staying in the restaurant. This bylaw would you know, happen sometime next year. There's a federal ban coming next December, December 2023, on the sale of single-use plastics. And so this is the city trying to get ready for that and to have the rules in place in Edmonton ahead of that happening. Of course, like you said, this has been postponed until the next public hearing, which will be coming up in a few weeks. Uh, so council will debate it at that point in time. Overall, everything you said made sense to me. One of the things that I don't know if you've noticed, but I definitely have, is you used to be able to order takeout and get a bunch of styrofoam containers, especially yeah. I'm thinking Chinese food is a huge culprit for that. But now I get these nice reusable plastic containers that I throw in my dishwasher, and then I use to distribute baked goods to my friends in. I get that there's a little bit more cost associated with that. I get that it's still plastic, but it's something that I do use. And I think if these bans, if there wasn't a political and cultural environment that was forcing these companies to shift, things like that wouldn't happen. Of course, what's the next step? You know, it's reduce. It's to have less of these things. But a lot of people will criticize rules and bylaws like this as government overreach or focusing on the wrong thing or making the problem worse or ruining my A&W straw by making one that gets soggy, any number of things like that. But we're in a climate emergency and every step counts. And I'm pretty excited to see our council actually pursuing this. 450 million single-use items disposed of every year in Edmonton is what waste-free Edmonton uh, predicts. So it could have a really big impact on reducing that and, you know, as you say, helping Edmonton achieve some of its climate goals. It's encouraging to me, Troy, looking at the uh, the minutes for this meeting. So it was postponed, which is not a surprise from this council and not great. But there was only two speakers registered to speak to it. So that kind of suggests to me that there's not a huge uproar of either support or opposition and maybe it'll actually just go forward. Like you said, 
there's a federal single-use plastic ban on the sale of single-use plastics coming in in December. So fighting against this kind of feels like, you know, Sisyphus pushing the boulder. <laughs> you you can enough. expend all the effort if you want, but the feds are coming in anyway, so might as well get out of the way. Yep. Well, the city's looking to get community leagues out of the way of park development. Think your neighborhood parks and playgrounds that community leagues in the past have built in neighborhoods in Edmonton. The city hopes to make the process a bit more equitable by putting all park development in a single process rather than the ad hoc system we have set up right now. Yeah, there's a new thing called the Community Parks Framework, which will be presented as part of the upcoming budget deliberations. And uh, it's kind of related to a report on community league funding, which Community and Public Services Committee is going to look at again in a couple of weeks. But the whole idea here is that currently we have this thing called the Neighborhood Park Development Program. It's been around since I was born, actually, Troy, in 1983. And what it does is it allows communities that want to build playgrounds or upgrade parks to raise some money to do it, and then they get matching funds from the city. And that maybe worked for a while, but the problem with that is that, as we know, not all neighborhoods and communities are equal. And so some of them are able to raise lots of money and others don't have a chance of raising any of that money. And so it means that things get built in the rich areas and maybe not in the others. And in fact, if you look at the data from the city on this since 2019, some neighbor or since 2009, some neighborhoods have accessed the program multiple times, while others have not been able to access it at all. So this new community parks framework is meant to do away with this you know, inequitable program. It will bring planning and uh, development for this parks uh, and playground stuff under the city, just like all of the other things that the city, you know, has to, to manage and plan for. And that has pros and cons. Maybe it'll make it more equitable. The obvious con here, of course, is that the city's budget is limited. And so now if it's all up to the city to fund entirely and to, to make that happen, we might not get as many things as we had in the past. Having sat on a committee that uh, helped build a playground, I can tell you that process as it currently exists is not very hospitable to communities. There's a lot of community work. And you talked about equal access to funding. Not all neighborhoods have as many rich people within them that are willing to donate. But there's yeah. also a level of investment that not all communities have. And that's people with the know-how, time, and inclination to sit on these committees to work with the city. And it's a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of complexity in the existing process. Toning that down, I think, also does increase the equity quite a bit. Of course, like you said, at the risk that perhaps this does mean that fewer playgrounds get built. Yeah, no, that's a really good point, right? It's a, it's a complicated thing to do, to pursue, and only certain neighborhoods can do that. So I'm optimistic that this will make it a little bit more equitable. The uh, Federation of Community Leagues has obviously been talking with the city about this. And one of the things that they're concerned about is that it might remove a passive community building tool because it sort of takes responsibility out of the hands of the neighborhood. So what do you think about that? Is that a good thing on balance, given that not everybody has the skills, as you say? No, I think they've got a pretty good point there, if I'm being honest. One of the great examples I have of this is, I don't know if you've been near Invermere in BC, but uh, from Invermere to Fairmont Hot Springs, there's a thing called the West Side Legacy Trail. It's this nice separated multi-use path that sort of like weaves through the mountainside. It's a 25 kilometer path. It's a really beautiful ride. Absolutely yep. love doing it. 
but it's also very cute. You know, there's little mile markers that have the names of the people who contributed to it. There's a lot of like really fun turnouts along the path and it's a little bit cheeky you know there's there's some jokes it's it's very much a community project because you know there was some matching government funds but about half of it was raised money-wise from people in the area who wanted this built now contrast that something to like in banff the legacy trail from canmore to banff while on ice trail it's a great ride it doesn't have any personality. It doesn't have any whimsy. And it certainly didn't have a community aligned to build it. And this longstanding community immortalized and with these longstanding relationships that building it constructed. I think communities with playgrounds are a lot like that. The friendships and maybe war bonds that are forged during this process can really bring the community together. And I don't see any way where this new process preserves that. Yeah, I hear you. I, that that sounds like a reasonable thing to be concerned about losing for sure. Let's hope that it actually does mean a uh, more equitable distribution of these things and so that future generations can benefit from uh, having things built, whether or not their predecessors were able to build bonds while they did it. Well, I think that's probably it for the week, right, Troy? Nothing else crazy happen or make you aggravated this week that we need to talk about? All right. Well, since you teed me up, here's what ground my gears this week. There was an Edmonton Journal article, and I'm very reticent to criticize people who are doing coverage of civic issues because... That's a good thing. Not many people do them. Yeah, it it matters. It makes our jobs easier, all that stuff. But there's this infatuation with looking at voting records. Because if you look at Congress in the United States, if you look at the House of Commons, the voting record, that's the that's the way to really prove something is true or false. It's like, you're campaigning on this, but your voting record says otherwise. Right. So there's a natural inclination to apply that to city council. And how do I know that such a natural inclination exists? Well, because I did it for several years, Matt. <laughs> I think if you go to your website, there are many charts about voting blocks and things like this from the past. For sure. I've tried very hard to make use of the open data and really make sense of the voting records of Edmonton City Council. And over the three-year process that I did this, I eventually decided to stop because there is very little value in it in a city council race. So expand on that a little bit. Isn't it interesting to know that maybe, I don't know, four or five councillors all vote the same way no matter what? It is on the surface, but what prevents this is the process we use at Edmonton City Council meetings because it's a little bit esoteric and it's a little bit unique. One of the main things is that almost all votes are unanimous at Edmonton City Council. We vote on things like adoption of agenda. We vote on procedural craft and even bylaws. The bulk of them are mass voted on three readings in the same meeting and everyone unanimously approves them. Post Media said in their in their analysis that since uh, this council started, 78 percent have been unanimous votes, which is actually a shockingly low number. Uh, In previous councils, that number was close to 85 to 95 percent of all motions being unanimous. And I think. Part of this might be because we have what we've talked about, this new council that disagrees more, but also that this council is broadly new and they haven't sort of like fallen into rote and had their phoning it in mode uh, where, you know, (laughs) they understand how to get a meeting flowing very quickly by approving everything unanimously. Yeah. The other idiosyncrasy of how we do our city council meetings is actually more meaningful and it causes this to be a lot less valuable. And that's because of how we do motion stacking. So in a typical governance scenario with Congress, with the House of Commons, there's a bill 
and everyone proposes amendments to the bill and the amendments are voted up or down and then you vote on the bill and then you can have a clearly established voting record. Here's what everyone supports and why. At city council, we don't quite do that. For example, if we have a motion that says, you know, we want to defund the Edmonton police, we want to reduce their increase to zero, we want to freeze their budget, or we want to reduce their budget to $2 million increase, or we want to give them a $6 million increase. Those aren't all handled independently. They're all stacked and they're voted on in the order of most impactful to least impactful. So for example, if you want to say, if you want to say freeze the police budget, and there are three other motions on the floor, one to give them a $15 million increase and one to give them a $6 million increase, the $15 million vote will go first and then the $6 million vote will go. And if the $6 million vote passes, you're never going to get to your freeze motion. That idiosyncrasy prevents the motions and the voting record from actually telling a true story because many counselors don't actually get to vote on what they want to vote on. They don't get to put themselves on the record because the motions never go to a vote. And sometimes they have to vote against something that they otherwise would be supportive of because it's not like a ranked ballot. They just want to have this thing fail so they can get to the thing that they really want because that's how our order goes. Yeah, I'm reminded also of, you know, many times counselors wanting to split motions to vote on them separately, but that doesn't always happen. And so sometimes people are voting for things that, you know, in an ideal world, we'd have more data about whether or not they actually support it because these things are jammed together into some giant motion. At the end of the day, a lot of these motions as well, it's not quite clear what's being voted on. For example, a lot of motions are just receipt for information. There's a report from city administration. The report is 16 pages long and you vote to receive it for information and have administration do it all or you vote not to. And now you can change some of those things with a subsequent motion. But again, that means that the votes that are recorded are not truly revealing of counselor's intent or of what a counselor supports. It makes it very difficult to establish voting blocks. It makes it very difficult to tell where counselors stand based on the voting record alone, which is why I I hate to use it as a valuable metric. Yeah, I hear you. The Post Media article did talk to a University of Calgary political scientist who said that maybe these informal voting alliances have already developed. But as you say, it's kind of hard to infer that from the data. The most obvious things the data pointed out to me are things that probably you, dear listener, will already know from listening to us describe their meetings to you each week, which is that Jennifer Rice and Karen Principe vote no more than anybody else by far, and that probably the most two opposite counselors are Jennifer Rice and Michael Jans in terms of their voting. Which is interesting, maybe, but some things to consider, for example, Jennifer Rice and Karen Prince Bay have the most no's because they're Mike Nickeling, you know, they're yes. voting no to everything that has a financial cost. Jans is close to there with the vote no, but if you actually look at the votes that Michael Jans is making, he's one of the few counselors that is voting no to second rounds of questioning. Interesting. When there's 75% of votes are unanimous and it's 12 to 1 on second round of question and Michael Jans is consistently voting no to second round of questions, it appears that Michael Jans votes no to a lot of things and is disagreeable. When in fact, 
we've complained about agenda management and about cancel <laughs> taking too long. Right. Maybe more people should be voting no to the second round. That's another thing that that's not a story that the voting record tells. You can dive in and you can tell these stories, but displaying it as percentages, it, do, it just doesn't capture that. It's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. You got to do more work to do it. Well, one, one thing this post-media article did do is get us to talk about it. And maybe it got some other people to talk about council and their counselors and stuff. And so that, as you said at the beginning, is probably a good thing overall. But I think your point is really valid that just looking at the percentages, you can make those numbers tell you anything you want. That's not really the story. As a final reminder, because again, I have looked at this in the past, in previous councils, some of the councillors that agreed the most were Aaron Paquette and Mike Nickel. <laughs> you can use this as a way of proving horseshoe political theory, or you can use this as a way of discounting voting records as a method for telling a story, or you can tell any story that you want, because this data, it's just not a useful data point, and it's really a method for anyone to tell whatever story they want. It's very easy to invent a story for this data. Thankfully, I don't have to invent a story for Park Power. They've provided me with ad copy to read. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. They offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Winter is coming. <laughs> uh, you know, that show's <laughs> 10 years old at this point. Let's, let's update our references. Winter is coming, and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing. So now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they are on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy and you can feel good knowing you are supporting a local business and helping give back to our communities with your power bills. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. And that's all for this week on Speaking Municipally. But if a listener wants to hear more from Taproot, there's probably other places they can go, right? You should definitely check out our other podcast called Bloom. It's all about innovation in Edmonton. And there's been some really interesting stories. Lee um, hosts Faiza Ramji and Karen Unland uh, did a sort of overview of what happened in the summer, a catch up on innovation related news. And the most recent episode was all about a former entrepreneur who sold his startup and is now working on something else. So it's kind of an interesting opportunity to get an inside scoop onto the journey of an innovator in our city. And you can find that at uh, bloom.taprootedmonton.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. Including this one, which I'll remind you, you should subscribe to. Just go open up iTunes, Pocket Casts, Spotify. Click that subscribe button. Get us in your feeds. Stop browsing to the website and playing it every week. <laughs> I still have the statistics on those of you that do. And I know some of you do it to annoy me, but just, just stop. Just, do just it for stop. Troy. Just subscribe. Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're... Speaking, Speaking municipally. municipally.